Hello everyone, we've got another Patreon preview here for you. I'm going to be including a bit on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire that actually came up in this episode, the third of many episodes in this series. If you would like to get the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get any funding for doing this show, and we genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy this preview. I've been trying to make them long enough that uh, they are enjoyable. And without further ado, solidarity. Uh, you know, previously we mentioned the Triangle Factory, and uh, a big part of the conditions that the workers were fighting against, you know, we talked about the dust in the air, the occupational diseases workers would get, the hours and all all those other things. And those are all vital. They're, they're I mean, literally affecting the workers' lives. <laughs> I mean, we talked about back in the, uh, a couple decades before this, how the life expectancy of workers in the mills in the Massachusetts mills in, in Lowell and Lawrence was like less than 30 years. It was, it was absolutely, it, it was like the life expectancy you would expect during a war. Uh, but in addition to that, one of the other critical things that workers faced were just absolutely ridiculously physically unsafe work environments due to the way they're constructed. And so those two things really compounded to make these, these workplaces incredibly deadly. And so, you know, the urgency of those demands for better working conditions and an end to the grim, dark, dust-choked caves that women workers were shoved into would be made starkly clear in the midst of the labor unrest. So uh, quoting directly from Philip Foner in his book, um, Women in the American Labor Movement, which is basically my Bible <laughs> text for this series, uh, this is how he described uh, the conditions. Quote, One of the largest firms that had resisted the union was the Triangle Shirtwaist Company located near Washington Square. This was one of the factories about which the New York Fire Commissioner, in testifying before the State Factory Investigating Commission, had said, quote within a quote, I think that a great many of the fire escapes in buildings today are only put up to be called a fire escape. They are absolutely inadequate and absolutely useless, end of quote within a quote. How inadequate and useless they were became a matter of history on Saturday, March 25th, 1911. Sometime after 4.30 p.m. on that day, a crowd began to gather in front of the Ash Building on the corner of Washington Street and Green Street. The crowd had come together because there had been a muffled explosion, quote-unquote, like a big puff. At first, only small wisps of smoke could be seen coming out of an eighth-floor window. Quote within a quote, but within a few moments, wrote New York World reporter James Cooper, who happened to be at the scene, the entire eighth floor was spouting little jets of flame from the windows as if the floor was surrounded by a row of incandescent lights. End of quote within a quote and overall quote. Yeah. And so the building owners had only provided one fire escape for the 10 story building. And that fire escape quickly collapsed because of inadequate construction. Multiple workers were killed in the collapse of the fire escape by itself. Uh, the flames swept through the death trap factory in mere minutes, with most of the 146 victims succumbing in the first 15 minutes of the blaze. Floors were covered with flammable material. Staircases were narrow and allowed flames to shoot up the building. And most of the few doors, which were not intentionally locked to keep the women workers from leaving, opened inward, trapping people during a surge to escape. 
Yeah, because people were basically running at the door, and this is mm-hmm. the you know the panic in a building, and why doors need to open out. And you mentioned not the ones that were not intentionally locked. Uh, it's important to note there that some of the doors were intentionally locked yeah. in order mm-hmm. to keep women from workers from leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the factory owners had previously rejected the suggestion of the fire department to install sprinklers because they declared that the cost to them to install such a system would constitute confiscation of their property. Which, like... (laughs) And the thing is, I know that sounds absolutely, like, unfathomable, but I think it's important to underline that because that's not just the attitude of old tycoon murderer factory owners. That is the same basic argument behind the dismantling of the administrative state in the United States, which is that any violation of any property right is an, is a confiscation of that property by the state. And so, like, this is at the heart of really, like, reactionary capitalist thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, that this is also, like, why... Uh, liberals go around saying like, oh, we initiated a like uh, incentive program for business owners to install, you know, HOA or not HOA. What is what's the safe acronym for like ADA uh, ADA accessible ramps? And it's like, okay, that's great that ADA accessible ramps are getting built. But also like you should make business owners eat that cost. You should just mm-hmm. make them eat it. You don't give them money to do it out of our taxes. Make them eat the cost if they're going to do business. Yeah. Also, uh, get an enforcement mechanism on that because, I mean, I just imagine this happening. It's like, oh, well, I mean, I guess there's going to be an OSHA fine of, uh, what is it, uh, about $200,000 total for all of these people who died. Yeah. No, I mean, exactly. And and. And it wasn't just the Triangle Factory that was this fucked up. Like, these guys were bad actors, for sure, but they were not the only ones. Uh, The local fire marshals identified similar or worse conditions in hundreds of factories around the city. Rose Schneiderman, labor leader among the workers, spoke at a memorial rally at the Metropolitan Opera House on April 2nd, one week later. Quote, I would be a traitor to those poor burned bodies if I were to talk good fellowship. We have tried, you good people of the public, and we have found you wanting. The old Inquisition had its racks and its thumbscrews and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The thumbscrews are the high-powered and swift machinery close to which we must work and the rack is here in the fire trap structures that will destroy us the minute they catch fire we have tried you citizens we are trying you now and you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers by the way of a charity gift but every time the workers come out in the only way that they know how to protest against conditions that are unbearable the strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily upon us we can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here too much blood has been spilled I know from experience it is up to the working people to save themselves, and the only way is through a strong working class movement. End quote. Yeah, powerful stuff. Yeah. And absolutely correct. Yeah, I uh, like seeing the, the, the class nature of the, the talk coming into play here, because I feel like that wasn't always part of the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the response from the local working class was was 
quite strong. 250,000 people attended the funerals of the victims that week. Unfortunately, though, as in a reflection, as I'm sure, I mean, no one would be surprised as we've, the way we've talked about the legal system in this country working, uh, Isaac Harris and Max Blanc, the murderous vampires who own the factory, uh, were found not guilty of manslaughter and suffered no punishment for the deaths of these people. A permanent memorial was only dedicated this past year on October 12th, 2023, over a century later. Shameful. Yeah. So, I, it, it, you just, you can't really, I, I feel like this is one of those, you know, people hold up the factory fire, you know, as a pivotal moment in history and how it, it permanently reshaped the way we think about the safety of buildings and, and, and regulation and construction habits and, and inspections and things like that. And it is that. It is that for sure. Um, like, very true. But I also think what gets left out in the telling of that, because this is always brought up in your social studies class, is like it's a one or two paragraph blurb and you talk about it. No, this is why we have building permits and this is why we have sprinklers and things like that. And that's true and that's good. But they usually leave out the fact that this all was happening as part of a nationwide labor upsurge against murderous working conditions, including these sorts of construction because i and i i i don't think that's just because oh you know we don't have time to put everything in a, a social studies textbook I, I mean i think that's pretty intentional because it leaves out the mechanism of action by how things change it, instead it, it presents the liberal idea of oh we saw this bad thing happen and simultaneously everyone got sad and then the government came out and our brave politician leaders they were nice and they changed the law and it's like no that's not what fucking happened like what happened was there was a strike wave with hundreds of thousands of workers for half a decade. And that forced politicians to enact laws that would put some small amount of restraint on these, you know, owners who are happy to build absolute death traps. So I, I, I think it's important to always contextualize the triangle shirtwaist factory fire in that way, that it, it was part of an ongoing struggle over all of these conditions. And it's not just the shock at the horror, although that certainly played a role, but it was the multi-year-long struggle of labor organizations, largely of women organizing themselves without any help from anybody else, that really forced those changes. So when we go back and look at all this, you know, this period of, of garment worker really like upheaval across the whole industrialized, you know, Midwest and, and Northeast, it, it really characterizes the kind of the end of the pre-World War One era where you have the area of no labor regulation, no closed shop, anywhere being one, organ unions being formed for a couple of years and falling apart. Because this movement, really catapulted the organizations involved in it to major prominence. Following the many garment worker strikes of 1909 to 1913, the ILGWU gained recognition at a majority of the major shops in New York City and Boston. Workers had won contracts largely similar to those won in the waves of 1910, with raises averaging 20%, restrictions on hours to around 52 a week, ending subcontracting, and ameliorating the worst dictatorial aspects of the sweatshops, including fines. By 1913, the ILGWU was the third largest AFL union with 90,000 members, a majority of them women workers. 
In September 1909, only 3,000 women garment workers were unionized. Just four years later, it was over 63,000. And now, the women workers in these industries were not just content to, you know, win the union and join the union and then just sit back. Like, they were going to fight for the important, like, lessons that were learned during the strike, one of which was if you have a union leader who repeatedly over and over and over again <laughs> refuses to listen to the rank and file, maybe it's time to get rid of that guy. <laughs> uh, because, because of his repeated betrayal of the rank and file, a split over the leadership of Thomas Rickert opened up within the United Garment Workers. And following the refusal to recognize that a majority wanted change, Gompers just went ahead and seated the Rickards delegates at the 1914 convention. And that was really the last straw. And so in response to this refusal to actually listen to the majority of the members of the organization, in December, 40,000 workers left the UGW to form the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, ACWA. Locked inside the factory 13 hours a day. Foreman's bent to break our backs, our uncle takes our pay. Sewing rows of velvet clothes for uptown girls to wear. Our tenement slums have become a city of despair. Seven cents an hour, yes, and every dress that's sewn. We'll sell for more than all my bills and everything I own. Saw a dress I made hung up in a fancy store. Reflections in the window show the ragged clothes I wore. Hope is broken, worries in my soul. One more day, one more dollar in the hole. I'm Celia Walker and I'm 20 years of age. I crossed the wide Atlantic for a fine living wage. The factory work and servants' chores were all that I could find. This Hours of sewing came and went, the workday almost done. The objects of our labor all around us, they were hung. The owners never trusted us, these immigrants, they swore. We'll steal any chance to get, that's why we lock the doors. Hope is broken, worries in my soul. One more day, one more dollar in the heart. Bolted shot on every single floor Kept my wits about me and the good Lord by my side But I still believe that luck's the only reason I'm alive Though 150 women died up in them flames Owners felt in the courts agreed it wasn't them to blame So Isaac Harris and Max Blank can go home to their wives While a hundred dollar bill should cover each and every life Hope is broken, worries in my soul One more day, one more dollar in the hole Mr. Corporation sitting 80 stories high Got a briefcase full of dollar bills, sleeps with it at night Makes his old damn living off of other people's needs He'll sell you his own hanging rod with profits to be made He'll sell you his own hanging rod with profits to be 